Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, today's guest is someone we've had previously on the show, and his work happens to also be a huge reason why this podcast exists. David Vermette is a researcher, writer, blogger. He is the author of the game-changing book, A Distinct Alien Race, The Untold Story of Franco-America, Industrialization, Immigration, Religious Strife. He's also behind the terrific blog, French North America. David, welcome back to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you so much, Jesse. I really appreciate it. I want to say it's a, it's a mutual admiration society now because uh, I really appreciate what you guys are doing on this podcast and how you're bringing together all these different voices to tell different parts of uh, our story. I'm really impressed. I listen to it. I learn from it. You guys are doing a great job. Awesome. Well, that means a ton coming from you, no doubt. That's so great. And one of the real cool things that's starting to develop here as we move on with this podcast is that previous episodes are starting to provide like a jumping point for further discussion on subsequent episodes. And so, David, we talked on the Patrick Lacroix episode about some of the reasons why so many were leaving Quebec and started to you know, migrate to the United States and a lot about the farming, availability of land. And I would just kind of like your thoughts on that topic, you know, the reality of the land availability, growth, potential for land acquisition in that period that we're talking about when we started to see the mass migration to the United States. Yeah, yeah. I heard what uh, Patrick had to say about that. And uh, and I thought, yeah, I want to jump in there and kind of give a little bit of a different perspective. I, I mostly agree with Patrick, I should say. I'm not going to contradict necessarily what Patrick said. Uh, I think what Patrick is really good at is showing the complexity in events and showing all the different layers of uh, causes that go into the different things that uh, happen in history. But uh, I guess uh, to address the question of kind of causes of the exodus from Quebec, you know, you can start with kind of a simple theory. You know, if somebody says, why did all these people leave Quebec and they're impatient and they want the 20 seconds or less version, you know, you can say, well, they ran out of land in the St. Lawrence Valley. You sure. know, that, that's, the, that's the simplest thing, right? So, okay, yeah, you can say, well, they had big families. You know, each child get a piece of the inheritance. You know, you had uh, what they call partable inheritance. Uh, and then you want to set up your, your sons or your children on their own farm. And arable land was scarce. And so people uh, ran out of land and they left and they found some other type of work to do. Okay, well, that's the simple theory. And it's not wrong. You know, it's not really wrong to say that. But uh, as always, history is like, uh, I call it like peeling an onion. <laughs> Of right. course, there's yeah. The, there's, there's the outside layer. Uh, okay, then you peel back and there's another layer there. So the first uh, kind of peel back of the onion there is that that kind of explanation uh, is really about farming and farmers, okay? And uh, not all these people who who came to work in New England were farmers or came from farm families. Uh, one of the things I discovered is the significant numbers of uh, French-Canadian origin people who were working in textile mills in New England who were wage earners sure. before they left Quebec. I mean, they were wage earners in Quebec before they came to the United States. And so they were either day laborers, you know, these kind of occasional laborers who work for a day wage. They were workers in small family shops like tanneries or shoe shops and that kind of thing in Quebec. Or they worked in factories in Quebec because there were factories in Quebec. Sure. Uh, uh, 
And so, you know, what I discovered there is about a quarter of the Franco-American men and as many as half of the Franco-American women who were working in these textile mills were wage earners in Quebec before they came to the USA, according to survey data from around 1908. And so that data showed that, in fact, per capita, a larger percentage of women working in cotton mills in New England had industrial experience in Quebec uh, as compared with men. I found that really interesting. Absolutely. Uh, 26% of Franco-American women surveyed who were working cotton mills in the U.S. at that time, beginning of the 20th century. 26% had manufacturing experience, specifically manufacturing experience in Quebec, before they came to the States. So you have Franco-American women working in textile mills in Quebec, and then they come to the States and they work in textile mills. You know, it wasn't that uncommon. And so uh, many of these families then who are kind of wage earners in Quebec, they, they had already made this transition from farmer to industrial worker in Quebec before they came to the United States. And in fact, that was the case with, uh, in my family, my great-great-grandfather, uh, he was born in Quebec in the St. Lawrence Valley and very much in a farm milieu. He was born on a family farm. His brother inherited that farm. He left the St. Lawrence Valley and went to the Eastern Townships uh, region yep. of Quebec, what was known then as the Eastern Townships region, and eventually he found work as, uh, as an asbestos miner in Tedford Mines when the uh, asbestos industry was opening up there. So uh, his sons then, my great-grandfather, then came and worked in the textile mill. So his family had already kind of made this transition sure. away from farming to, you know, industry, you know, before they even came to the United States. Uh, so, you know, with all that uh, having been said, uh, ultimately, when it comes to the exodus from Quebec in the 19th century, I would point to the structural changes in the rural economy of Quebec. And in fact, you see similar things happening in the late 19th century all over northeastern North America, but not just in Quebec. And basically, these changes were caused, I think, by increased competition from settler agriculture out west. Okay, so you've got these people, these farmers moving from east to west, you know, they're opening up the Midwest and then, you know, for areas even further west. Uh, and you've got railroads going out there and they're now uh, shipping uh, farm products back east and you have competitive, you start to have a competitive market there. And just uh, kind of common sense, just gut feeling, if the game you're playing is wheat agriculture, and that's what we're talking about yep. here is growing wheat or growing grains. That was the staple crop for marketing back in the earlier 19th century. Okay, so common sense, you know, it's a, it's a battle between Kansas and Vermont over, you know, who's going to turn wheat into a profitable business. I'm going to say Kansas is going to win that battle. <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah. It's, like, it's like the New England Patriots NFL team versus my high school squad. Right? Okay, you know, not, not, Patriots are going to win that battle every time, right? So, I'm sure that was a good high school you know, Manitoba, team, though, yeah. Manitoba or Quebec, okay, who's going to win the battle long-term to create a wheat industry? I think Manitoba's going to win that battle if we're just looking at a Canadian market, okay? So what I think is... Quebec farmers saw this coming. They saw this coming in mid-century, and they said, oh, we got to move away from what we're doing. Uh, we're not long-term going to be competitive in wheat if that's our stable uh, stable crop for market. So we're going to move into some other kind of farming. So they, they, they moved into, they retooled their farms. They moved into other kind of farming, like dairy farming or a fodder crops, you know, raising food for animals, or animal husbandry, you're raising animals, right, for, sure. 
supermarket, you know, or there's these mixed economies. You have these guys who are, uh, and uh, maybe some women too, who are, you know, working in the timber industry during the winter, and then they come back to the farm in the farming months, or they're working in mines, and they also have farms, you know, that kind of mixed uh, economy, that kind of thing, right? So uh, what yep. you have is uh, you have to retool your farm. You know, I'm moving away from grain production. I want to move into dairy. That means I've got to retool my farm, and that, that usually means capital. Right. So this runs into the problem of just not having a viable system of credit, you know, because if you can't borrow money on decent terms, you've got to either save up the money yourself. Uh, you know, that's really the only way you can do it. Uh, and so what you had in uh, developing Quebec is the credit union movement, right? Sure. And Alphonse Desjardins and the, uh, of course, Manchester knows about the uh, Caisse Populaire, you know, this whole movement. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Credit unions, right? And so why? <laughs> why? Well, there's no credit there. You need a credit system, right? So sure. what I think happened is that rural economy in Quebec, it developed and it changed. It was not stagnant. It was changing really quickly. And those changes changes divided more sharply the fortunes of some farm families who could make a transition and some who really couldn't. And the ones who, who couldn't make a, a viable transition there and they're falling behind, a safety valve, if you like, uh, was you could go to the New England and work in the mills, right? So some farmers, so some families were able to make a change, some families weren't, you know, some who weren't able to make a change in terms of the rural economy of Quebec came to New England. Uh, and so, you know, that the, these changes in the rural economy, it didn't just affect farmers, but also laborers and other wage earners who are in that rural space, you know, are dependent on that economy. Right. right. So, yep. uh, so th this is what I'm thinking. And, you know, the, one of the last points I'd make about that is, uh, uh, you know, there, there was a migration from all over northeastern North America out west. You know, I mean, farmers are leaving Vermont and New York State, and they're moving out west, you know. And so uh, the Quebec farmers, some of them did go to the west. They went to the U.S. Midwest in the mid-19th century. There's a big movement of uh, French-Canadian uh, farmers into Illinois and Michigan and even into Kansas and other places like that, but, and also to the Canadian west. But right. by and large, this is really strange. The migration of, of uh, Quebec farmers didn't go east to west. It went north to south. Right. They went south into the New England mills, and so why did that? Why did that happen rather than going out to the Canadian West? Well, I think there were both economic and political reasons. Kind of long story short, the setup costs were really high if you're going to move out to Manitoba or Saskatchewan. There were there were administrative fees and whatnot if you wanted to get title for land. The farming's a really has a really long tail. You know, it's going to take you a long time before you see really any uh, you know any real uh, income or sure. even products from your farm. There's not much you can do out there. Even the train out there costs a lot of money, really high. The all in all, coming to New England was a less risky move. Uh, and there were also political reasons. I'm not going to go back to Adam, but, you know, you had the, the Métis rebellions out there right. in uh, 1869 to 1870, again in 1885. There, there was uh, kind of a case of instability there, you know, in the eyes of a lot of people, you know, French-speaking people thinking of moving out there. Those were very major events in those times are much discussed all over French-speaking North America. Then I believe in 1890 or right around there, the Manitoba government decided it was going to have a unilingual public school system that was basically going to be an English language uh, school system. Uh, at that very same time, you have Franco-Americans in cities like Manchester building French language schools or bilingual schools right. and having their own, you know, French language parochial schools. Uh, and so you have this weird paradox where the Canadian government is actually having people come from Ukraine and Germany and Poland to settle the Canadian West 
why you have these, you know, Canadians who were born in Canada and many generations of their family had lived in Canada, right. leaving the country and coming to the United States. It's a little bit weird, and frankly, there's a little bit of a, a burn there. You know, when you mention that to people from Quebec or people who know the history, there's still a little bit of a of a burn there from that. Uh, so anyway, I think th- those uh, that's how I understand kind of in a nutshell how uh, some of the forces, economic forces, work that might have created this exodus. That's super interesting. The whole idea that might have been less risky to cross a border than to just go west for them. That's that's pretty yeah. cool. No, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, we had mentioned your blog during the intro. In this whole discussion, pretty good lead-in to one of your blog posts that I thought was super fascinating. You talked about, were 19th century Canadians bad farmers? Because that's a story yes. I have to confess. Yeah. I've heard myself. That was one, you know, one of the reasons that they had to come down is because they weren't particularly good at this farming thing. And you addressed yes. that in this article. I thought it was cool. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It is one of the most commonplace things you read, and it's almost a stock line you know what i mean like you read enough books and articles about this stuff and you kind of get this litany of you know bad farming practices you know they didn't use fertilizer right they didn't have proper crop rotation their tools were bad you know they had too much concentration on one crop and you know they kind of is this stock set of charges almost against the uh french canadian farmers and you know the thing i i started thinking is well you know were they really that bad by north american standards you know, compare them to their neighbors. Okay, so compared to English Canadians, you know, in Ontario or New Brunswick, or compared to other farmers who are in the northeastern parts of the United States, where, you know, the climate conditions were at least somewhat comparable. I mean, it's a lot more, makes a lot more sense to compare Quebec to New York State farming than comparing Quebec to Louisiana farming or Arkansas farming, you know. So if you kind of look at the neighboring, the, the Quebec's neighbors, what I found is, in fact, uh, farm productivity wasn't really that different between these different places. And uh, farm methods weren't really that different between these different places. If you look at uh, reports about U.S. farming, and I, I quote this and cite this in my blog post, there was a report that was done on uh, the farming in Quebec uh, that was uh, done in 1850. Uh, and then I found a really similar report digging around about U.S. farming from 1860, so from a similar period, mid-19th century. And what I discovered is, if you look at the qualitative descriptions of farmers and their methods, they're almost identical yeah. between the U.S. and Quebec. You know, that, that stock set of deficiencies, the defects at least in farming, between U.S. farmers and uh, Quebec farmers are really similar and weren't really that different. But this is really interesting. The frame that commentators put around the defects in farming were really different. So when it came to the Quebec farmer, people immediately jumped to their culture, their mentality. Right. Uh, you know, they, they try to make it some kind of cultural trait or national trait of French Canadians that somehow they're bad farmers. When it came to the U.S. farmers, the whole frame of it was much more optimistic. I mean, it was just seen as, uh, you know, there's this farming methods. We're learning more about farming. A younger generation of farmers will put into effect, you know, these new farming methods and they'll do better. You know, there was the expectation that, sure. you know, American farmers are going to learn. The next generation will come along. They'll do a bit, a bit better than their fathers, etc. You know, so so around the U.S. farmer was this kind of can-do optimism. And around the Quebec farmer was just all of this gloom, all of these assessments and judgments about their culture. And yet the facts on the ground are pretty much the same. 
So, yeah. so in fact, it's it's really interesting. There's been kind of scientific uh, studies or, you know, really detailed analytic studies done over the last, like, 30 years, you know, extending into quite recent times, you know, just in, in the last year or two, there's been new studies along these lines. But uh, a lot of uh, English-speaking scholars have looked at the question of whether the English-speaking farmers and the French-speaking farmers in Quebec, whether there were really important differences in productivity and income between these two groups. And by and large, the studies I've read say there was no real important difference in productivity between English-speaking farmers and French-speaking farmers within Quebec. English-speaking farmers tended on average to have a, a higher farm income. Right. Okay. And that's where people get confused, sure. right? There's a difference between the income you derive from your farm and the productivity pound for pound of your farm. And, you know, if we're looking at farming methods and techniques, we're looking at productivity. Your income can be affected by a lot of things like proximity to infrastructures like railroads or canals or whatever, right? Sure. That can affect your farm income a lot. But, you know, your farm productivity is really what we want to look at. And that is no important difference between English, Anglophone, and Francophone farmers in Quebec. Curious, though. Were there yeah. substantial advantages generally that the English farmers in Quebec had that led to their increased monetary value for their their products? There's a couple of ideas we could we could bat around about that. One is just that their holdings were larger. Gotcha. Um, which means you've got economies of scale that kick in there. I think access to infrastructures is huge. Gotcha. You know, railroads were put through English-speaking parts of Quebec that weren't put through French-speaking parts. Got an interesting story. It's kind of a long one. Please. I told it in in one of my podcasts that I did with Sandra Goodwin. I touched on this story, but uh, this doesn't have to do with farming, but it has to do with sawmills. Uh, in the township that my great-great-grandfather moved to from the St. Lawrence Valley, when he moved out of there, he moved to the townships. He first moved to a place that was then known as Nelson Township. And I noticed that there were two sawmills in Nelson Township. One was uh, operated by my great-great-grandfather's father-in-law, who happened to be also his next-door neighbor. Uh, And he had a small sawmill on his property, and uh, in the census it'll tell you all kinds of detailed information, (laughs) like more than you'd ever care to know about how many logs he processed and what the what the value was of those boards or not. I went through all that stuff because I'm crazy and I love stuff like that. So I went through all that stuff. And then I I noticed there's this other sawmill that's owned by the King brothers. Charles King was this guy who came from Great Britain to Quebec. And uh, he obviously had access to to capital, considerable amounts, because he bought up a bunch of lots in Nelson Township. So his sawmill had astronomically more wood processed. The value of the wood produced was much higher. Sure. He's, you know, he, he's hauling in way more logs, you know, in the King Brothers uh, sawmill than in uh, the uh, French-speaking guy sawmill. And, uh, okay, so this guy yeah, does do a considerable business, and so what did he do? He went to Parliament, and uh, the King Brothers petitioned Parliament to have the Grand Truck Railroad put right through where his sawmill was. Very nice. Yeah. Right? So, so now you've got access to faraway markets, so before you know it, they have more than one sawmill, right? And yes. they really expand their business. And they become the kings, uh, pun intended, <laughs> of the timber industry in Nelson Township and the surrounding area. Then, lo and behold, there's uh, the asbestos is found in the township of Tedford, which is really near Nelson. Uh, and so the King Brothers swoop down because they've got serious capital, and they buy a bunch of uh, town- uh, uh, lots in the township of Tedford, and they go hold hog into the asbestos mining business, which 
uh, anybody who knows about Quebec e- economics knows that was a huge industry in Quebec. Uh, and so, you know, they make yet another fortune in asbestos, right? So, so uh, you know, Michel Tourjean, this uh, French-speaking f- uh, farmer and uh, owner of this sawmill, you know, this is a small-time operation. Eh? So what I say is that, the you know, the, these uh, French-speaking entrepreneurs like uh, my great-great-grandfather's father-in-law, they weren't unenterprising. They were undercapitalized. You know, they didn't have the capital that some of these English uh, speaking people had. Uh, and so, you know, if you're the King Brothers, you start a really successful business and then you have the capital to start a really, really successful <laughs> business. Right? If you're Michel Tourjean, you, you just don't have access to that. Right, what it is is also political connections. If you've got serious money, you're, you're an English speaking guy, you're an educated man, you're respected in the townships, you can go to Parliament and get the Grand Trunk Railroad put through your property, you know? That's how it goes. That's influence, right? Yeah. Uh, so that, that's a little, just a little tiny got you. Case I got you. study. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How, like English-speaking people, you know, had great influence and great access to capital in Great Britain and in the United States, and you know, so this is why overall, I think, uh, you know, in the case of farming, you had uh, higher uh, farm incomes among English-speaking people. That's super fascinating. I did want to touch on another super interesting post that, that you had on your blog: the non okay. non stereotypical occupations of Franco-American women. 1900. Oh yeah. Maybe you could tell us what this was about and why the why specifically the year 1900. Why was that picked? It was picked because there was uh, a really interesting analysis done in 1904. The U.S. Bureau of the Census. Uh, somebody went through and they compiled all of this occupation data and they broke it out by all these different factors. And one of them was the parentage or origin of the person. Okay, so that allowed me to swoop in and say, <laughs> okay, let's let's look at French-Canadian origin people and say what their occupations were. And what's cool about this is it's not just New England. It's nationwide. This is the, you know, the 1900 census of the entire United States. Yep. So we can look at French-Canadian origin people all over the country and see what occupations they had. And, you know, some of them are just really amazing to me. Like, you know, there were 12... Uh, Franco-American women who had the occupation of clergymen, quote-unquote. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's just really strange. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, to say the least, back then we wouldn't expect that. But, you know, I've seen clergy women among the Universalists, I believe, in Maine, okay. you know, who sure. later merged with the Unitarians. I know that in the 19th century that denomination did have clergy women. Uh, somebody told me Salvation Army also had clergy yeah. women. Maybe it's a mistake. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe somebody thought nuns should be listed as clergymen, <laughs> yeah. you know, sure. maybe who knows. But it's plenty strange. But what what I like on the wider level is just the data about French-Canadian origin people's occupations in general. And what I found is, again, this is nationwide, not New England specific. If you take all people who are occupied, who work outside the home, uh, you find that fully 17% of them are cotton mill operatives at that time. And that is the biggest cohort far and away. Uh, And then you've got uh, this category of laborers not specified. (laughs) This is kind of a strange one because the uh, notes that go along with that report say about that is that, you know, these basically are ditch diggers. You know, these are people who are who are working on construction on roads and sure. sewers and trades and things like that. And you no, know, in agricultural districts, of course, they're you know agricultural laborers. They mend fences and gathering harvests and 
and uh, working as farm workers. Generally, they're unskilled workmen. And so what this analysis of the census tried to do is break out these laborers not specified and make them specified. So, you know, maybe they're actually occasional laborers in mills or they're occasional labor farm workers or something like that. So they tried to recategorize these laborers unspecified. Even having done that, the category of laborers not specified is number two in right. the among the occupations of French Canadian origin people. Just astounding. In fact, it's number one among men. The biggest cohort of occupation among men are these kind of unspecified, unskilled, occasional laborers. It's really stunning. And so what's interesting, again, is I, I divided out men and women. And this is very cool, because for women, it's just amazing. 37% of women employed outside the home are cotton mill operatives. It's amazing. And yeah, more than absolutely. one half more than one half of Franco-American women employed outside the home are working as cotton mill oper- operatives or in, or as some other type of textile mill operative. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, and so, you know, you, you have a lot of women there. And in fact, uh, among the men, again, laborers not specified is the number one category with 15%. Cotton mill operative is number two with 11%. And so what uh, what I concluded is that it's actually per- the preponderance of women working as cotton mill operatives that tips the scale uh, in favor of that occupation being really the, the number one occupation for uh, all uh, uh, French-Canadian origin people nationwide. The other thing I learned from the analysis I did is just the power of the the, uh, the French-Canadian cotton textile worker cohort. You know, like that that's the most visible thing right. in 1900 yeah. about the French-Canadian origin people uh, in the United States is their incredible massive concentration in that one industry. That's interesting. Now, I got a comment, though. I would absolutely have liked to have met the couple of women who worked full-time as woodchoppers. I thought that was a pretty cool occupation. <laughs> yeah, it's really amazing. Yeah, you know, it's really not, that's not stereotypical. Or 102 were iron and steel workers. Right, yeah, absolutely. That's you know, awesome. You know, and as I said, that's long before the Rosie the Riveter and all that, you know. Uh, in fact, I think there's kind of a... I don't know, it's a little bit classist, the Rose of the River in a narrative, because, you know, my great-grandmother was working in a textile mill when she was 12 years old. Sure. You know, my mom worked in a factory, my grandmother worked, you know, women worked outside the home. Absolutely. You know, working-class women worked. If they weren't taking care of small children, generally, they were working. Yeah, yeah. My grandmother went to work after eighth grade, same thing. Yeah. Yep. All right, I would like to touch on another one, if I could, which was sure. the... Because I, I was, I love the title to begin with. Must French Canadians be made to sing Yankee Doodle, a dialogue from Vermont, which which is awesome. Yeah. Maybe you can introduce us to that because I like to meet this Father Boissonneau guy. He seems like a good character. He does. He is a good character. Uh, this blog post was about kind of an exchange I read. I happened across uh, this in my research into the old newspapers and. Uh, I noticed this uh, dialogue, as it were, that were in this newspaper from St. Johnsbury, Vermont, that's called The Caledonian. Uh, and basically, The Caledonian published uh, or reprinted a piece from a Boston newspaper, a much larger paper called The Boston Advertiser, and that the head of it was an immigration problem. Basically, what this uh, uh, reprinted editorial from the Boston paper is getting at is uh, it's kind of hinting at this whole conspiracy theory idea that, you know, the Catholic Church had sent 
these first Canadian workers into New England to eventually seize political control, and then, you know, Quebec would become independent and annex these New England states to some revived New France. So this editor is basically putting that theory forward. Uh, and so uh, Father Boissonneau, who was the local parish priest at St. Johnsbury, uh, writes into the paper, and, and in a very fact-based and very sober way, and with a sense of humor also, I thought, he just refutes all of this. Absolutely. I, mean, he, it, I found this a really great one. He says, quote, they say that Rome is encouraging the French Canadians to emigrate into the New England states to Catholicize them. On this point, I give them a flat denial. I am a missionary among these people for more than 20 years. I've not met one single family but which has left Canada against the will of its pastor. I thought that was really, Absolutely. really fascinating testimony, right? Because what he's saying there is basically this immigration movement is not with the encouragement right. of the church, but on the country. And it also implies to me that, you know, these French-Canadian immigrants were not as priest-ridden as this generally said, because they're act actually acting against the will of their priest to do what was right for their family or what they thought was right for their family. That's an interesting final point because you do we hear the narrative all the time that these you know French Canadians entire lives were dictated by whatever the parish priest told them to you know the, right. who, they, who they married was going to be determined by the parish priest like, basically there was what the jobs they chose to take on was going to be influenced by the parish priest that there was very very little they did without the blessing of the parish priest so I think that's very cool the whole idea that these the parish priests were not telling them to leave to this to the United States were really trying as hard as they could to keep them in Quebec, but they left anyway. Yeah, that's pretty much right. And in fact, as that this uh, priest, Father Boissonneau, points out, you know, the, the Quebec clergy was actually encouraging the opening up of what they called colonization areas, basically the uh, the public lands of Quebec, I think is the phrase that Father Boissonneau used. But, uh, you know, the Quebec government was trying to open up new areas for agriculture that would discourage people from coming to New England. Yeah, no, that's cool. Now, something we absolutely have to make sure to touch upon was something you wrote with the Smithsonian, which I thought was very cool. First of all, how did that come about? Because that was yeah. really, really interesting. Yeah, it just came a bolt out of the blue. Smithsonian had a, a partner, a Zocalo Public Square. It's kind of a, a journalism nonprofit, maybe. Uh, anyway, they were partnering with Smithsonian on this project called What It Means to Be an American. So Zocalo just contacted me and they said, we've got your book, A Distinct Alien Race. Uh, we think that, you know, you should write an article for us about this theme, what it means to be an American. Uh, and they showed me where I could find the other articles that they had written along those lines. Uh, and uh, I worked very closely with a number of editors. And uh, uh, without telling too many tales out of school here, you know, when Smithsonian's going to put their name on it, they're really careful. I believe every that. Every word. Sure. There's editors galore. There's editors crawling all over. <laughs> that, that was a heavily, you know, very carefully curated I, I piece. I can believe but that. But yeah, sure. uh, it came out and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably happy with, uh, you know, what came out. You know, it tells that story that I just told in a nutshell there, really about the fear that uh, some people in the United States had that they were being uh, overrun by a French-Canadian conspiracy to subvert New England. England, you know, it's that story, and obviously that's a big part of my book as well. So, yeah, that's basically the uh, the story of the Smithsonian piece. That's awesome. I still want to look more into this whole New France idea. I don't think that should be dead yet. I think that's kind of fun. But I do want to mention this uh, France-Amérique interview. Maybe you tell us about yeah. kind of what that, how that came about. Yeah, well, it was interesting. That came about from the Smithsonian article. Somebody, <laughs> uh, 
yeah, somebody read the Smithsonian piece, and Clément Thierry is the journalist's name, and he contacted me and said, I think this would be a great interview for our magazine. And I believe that that magazine was uh, founded, it was founded during World War II in New York City, kind of the free French or, you know, French people in New York City, I believe, founded that. Uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a kind of an international francophony uh, oriented magazine. It's not oriented toward Quebec or uh, French North, uh, you know, French uh, Canada in particular. Uh, it's oriented as a very France orientation. So I thought it was really cool to get this story, you know, before that audience. Yeah. Uh, so again, I talked to Clément for about an hour. You know, you could probably read what, what was actually published as the interview. You could probably read in five minutes. Right? So, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of editing went down, uh, went down there as well. But, you know, I'm happy with that interview. And, uh, you know, every little bit helps. And, you know, when we get these little bits of publicity, we do see an uptick in sales of the book. So no, that's we're awesome. happy to, yeah, to, have, uh, to have that press. That's very cool. Well, I did want to bring up one more topic. Which again, something not super familiar with, the annexation of Canada by the United States in the around 1890-1914 period. Kind of, what is that story, and how does that impact Franco-Americans? Yeah, well, this is really exciting. This is a thing that I've kind of discovered, and I want to introduce this topic because it's going to come up on my blog, and I'm going to stretch out on it. <laughs> Good. Uh, like a jazz, you know, I also am a jazz bass player, and, you know, we, we, we say stretch out. That means just take your time, <laughs> take as many choruses as you want, to make you your go. statement. You know, that's what we're going to do. I'm going so to play, I'm going to jam a lot of choruses <laughs> the theme of annexation of Canada by the U.S. And, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. From about 1890 to about World War One, there was a lot of ferment in the press, in particular, about this idea that the U.S. would acquire Canada. You know, and uh, if you look at the broader context of the 1890s, the U.S. was expanding very rapidly sure. into the Pacific and into the Caribbean. You know, during that decade, the United States acquired Hawaii and Puerto Rico and Guam. And uh, there was a, a big struggle, in fact, to uh, for the U.S. to take possession of the Philippines. Earlier in that century, the U.S. had already acquired Alaska. Uh, and it, it just seemed like the U.S. might just gobble up Canada. <laughs> uh, I believe Teddy Roosevelt talked about this, uh, and in fact, the uh, French-Canadian uh, people at that time were not averse to this idea. This will surprise a lot of wow. modern people. Yeah. Uh, it was very openly discussed by uh, very prominent Quebec politicians and public figures like Mercier and Louis Frechette and uh, Honoré Beaucran, who was the mayor of Montreal, uh, and in fact, no less a, a, a person than uh, Louis-Joseph Papineau himself supported the annexation of Canada by the United States. Wow. Um, uh, this was his, as I say in the book, this was his final political destination. Uh, now, his, his actual political influence in Quebec had waned quite a bit uh, over the previous decades, but nonetheless, at the end, by the end of his life, Papineau was supporting U.S. annexation of Canada, and he was he was in touch with a society started by Franco-Americans in New York City that was pro-annexation. Okay, so uh, the Franco-American element here in the United States was largely in favor of annexation. Uh, one of the first conventions of the uh, French Canadians of the United States that met in 1868. 
that was just one year after the Confederation of Canada in 1867. Uh, and when they met in 1868, the convention came out against the Confederation of Canada. They thought the Confederation of Canada was a bad idea. And uh, the convention called for the annexation of Canada by the United States or for an independent Canada with a republic, you know, a republican form of government. Yeah, so sure. They're talking about an independent Canada vis-a-vis Great Britain. Right. Okay. Uh, and so, and you know, this wasn't just a wish for thing. I'm talking about the annexation of Canada by the U.S. It wasn't just some uh, wishful thinking thing. It was a thing spoken about at that time as very likely to happen. And people were expecting that eventually Canada would become part of the U.S. Uh, and so apparently many of the people who came from Quebec to New England imagined that they would be reunited politically and economically with their compatriots in Quebec when annexation came. Okay, and I, I think this is, again, this go, we're going full circle, because I think this was one of the reasons why New England had more immigrants from Quebec than Manitoba. I think what people were thinking at that time is, when annexation comes, and for them it was a when, not an if, when annexation comes, New England's Franco-Americans would be near their neighbors and relatives in Quebec, you know, and yeah. they would form a decent block in this new United States that was united with Canada. Uh, they didn't want to be way out west. When the USA took over Canada, uh, they didn't want to be stranded way out west somewhere. They wanted to be near their relatives in Quebec. I'm, I'm convinced, I don't have hard evidence for it, but as <laughs> I look at it now, I'm convinced that that was the thought process there. So this is really ironic, This uh, the whole discussion of annexation, since supposedly the Franco-Americans were plotting to separate New England from the U.S. and you know, get it attached to an independent Quebec. In fact, just the opposite. Many, if not most, Franco-Americans at that time who had an opinion about it favored the U.S. eventually absorbing Canada. And uh, like I said, there was a huge press about this at the time. Article after article after article, I found about it. Almost every one of the articles mentions the very large French-Canadian presence in New England at that time. That's really the connection. Because when people talk about the U.S. and Mexican Canada, they say, wow, look at all, you know, there's already a million French Canadians here. Right. Uh, and they often talk about the political influence of the uh, Franco-Americans of New England in favor of annexation. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's very, very interesting. So I'm going to, like I say, I'm going to stretch out and I'm going to have several blog posts where I'm going to explore different perspectives on the annexation question. I actually got into an argument with a guy on Facebook one time, you know, one of those very charitable, kind <laughs> exchanges course, that yes. people have on Facebook. Anyway, it was just it was just as charitable as you you can imagine. This guy <laughs> told me there was no that there was never any popular support for US annexation of Canada. That never happened. You know, there were just a few Tory businessmen in Montreal who may have contemplated that, but there was never any popular support of that. And I can say unequivocally that this is wrong. There was a very large movement at that time uh, there was a lot of press about it. It was supported by major public figures in Quebec. Uh, so this will be an interesting thing to explore. Well, that's awesome. That's going to be way, way exciting to be able to read through that. This has been an absolute blast, David. Thank you so much for coming back. Now, I have to ask, though, because the last time you came on this podcast, you mentioned that the reason for the blog was because it was kind of like your R&D for this book. Now we get this. Right. We get the blog picking up again. Any chance? Book yeah. number two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I, I definitely think there's another book. Uh, I'm planning on writing another book in my life, <laughs> okay. uh, and I've got a couple of ideas of what direction it's going to go in. But 
basically, I, I, I love this stuff. I love researching. I love writing. And that's what I'm going to do. When I, when I was writing the first book, uh, I just pursued what I loved. You know, I just said, sure. okay, I think people are going to think I'm crazy, but I'm going to write about this stuff. <laughs> and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to spend, you know, the afternoons counting up names in the census and, you know, just, just, <laughs> Just doing insane things of that course. I did to write yeah. that part. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so I just decided I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to write about what I love. I'm going to continue to pursue these things. Um, and so, you know, maybe down the line it becomes another book, and maybe it has a slightly different angle. But uh, basically, I just can't help myself. That's from, awesome. From writing about this stuff. So I, I, I got to write. It's awesome. Can you just give us the address of the, where we can find that blog? Absolutely. The address is French North America, all one word, dot blogspot dot com. Awesome. Again, we've been speaking with David Vermet, the author of A Distinct Alien Race, The Untold Story of Franco-Americans, Industrialization, Immigration, Religious Strife. David, again, we really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Had a blast. Thanks for having me. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.